One of the things I, uh, <clears throat> I like about having the young people uh, pray, one of the things I love about it is because they always uh, enhance our vocabulary. And, and, I, and I am, I'm not joking when I say I love that Jack just said that Jesus gave to us through his blood the sweet life. That was awesome. We sang that song, Sovereign, and uh, the song was about trusting God, and it got me thinking about something that I've talked with uh, many of you about over time, and that is the connection between trusting God and understanding God and his creation. And that is the reason uh, that what we're about to do now is uh, the high point of our service, uh, because it is only through understanding the who, the how, and the why about God and his creation, uh, it is only through that process that we come to uh, trust him. In other words, we don't trust without understanding of who it is that we are trusting, how they do what they do, and why they do what they do. And so uh, every time that we endeavor to, uh, to do that, to understand what it is that God says to us from his word, whether it be about him or about uh, us or a creation, um, we're doing work in learning to really trust God more uh, because, again, that comes through uh, understanding. Well, the handout that you should have in front of you should say uh, part three, doing a family according to Jesus, part three. If you don't have that, raise your hand. Anyone need a handout? <clears throat> By the way, that bread was really dry. I am convinced that the manna that God gave to his people because he loved them was more like what Leo prepares for us than that. Okay? Would you agree? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Leo, for doing that. That's great. No, no, nothing against you. <laughs> um, we've been talking about family and how to do family. Again, that's what we're going to talk about again today, how to apply Jesus' radical view of family to our lives, what that looks like. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, thank you that you have, as uh, one of my uh, brothers prayed, you've brought us here today. We, we see that as a great privilege to be in your house. We know that uh, your presence is here with us in a very special way, different than how it is when we are in the world. When we come together in this place, when we come into your house, uh, we come to receive your blessing. And one of the ways that we receive that is just what we what we considered, and that is really what your word calls the renewing of our minds. It's when we gain understanding from your word that we learn more to trust you, and that is a blessing because that gives us then the strength through hard times. It gives us the perseverance we need to keep following your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as we endeavor again to do that here, uh, that you would give us that understanding that we need unto trust in you. Make it so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in light of uh, last night's event, uh, I'm going to just skip right down to our new material. You'll see a uh, review in relation to, or at least the points stated from the past, uh, what we've covered uh, already, which is the first four points in relation to this subject, doing family according to Jesus. And so we're going to just jump right into 
uh, the new material here because uh, I can tell already that uh, many of us are, are, are tired and uh, I want to make sure that we're uh, as attentive as we can possibly be and so we'll, we'll cut off the review and hopefully that'll help in relation to time. Uh, so number five then, what that looks like, doing family according to Jesus, what that looks like or includes would be this. Your life is an open book to your church family and you welcome their correction versus you hide your life and get angry or pout when others call you out or call out your sin. Let me say that again. Your life is an open book to your church family and you welcome their correction. You're happy about it versus you hide your life. You don't want others to be in your life. And you get angry or you pout when others call out your sin. That's what it looks like to do family. You let them into your life. And you want them there for, among other things, this. You want them there uh, to help correct those things that are wrong. uh, To keep you on the narrow path following Jesus. Uh, Why... uh, Why is it that uh, we need that? Why do we need others uh, helping us in that regard? Why can't we uh, just do this on our own? And I think that that's uh, something that is uh, common in this this country is the self-made man or the person that uh, is able to handle everything he or she needs to handle on their own. We don't need others to do it. As I said, I think it's common, it's a, it's a part of the American mindset to think that way. And yet what Jesus calls us to is something very different, something very radical, and that is that we need others. We need each other. We need the covenant community if we're going to stay on course. And so uh, we should see correction from others as a positive, as a good thing. One thing that I talk with my wife about is... Uh, the perspective of the junior quarterback. How the junior quarterback who one day will replace uh, the man now in that position, how he looks at that individual. He sees that person as his mentor. And so he receives or he wants to receive correction or instruction from that individual. And we don't have to see everybody as necessarily our mentor uh, to receive it that way. But we need to have the same perspective that we are here to help each other. And so again, we welcome that so that we can, we can the, be the best that we can be for Jesus and most importantly, uh, that we can uh, keep from or uh, uh, be protected from straying from the path, uh, which ends or leads then to apostasy. Isaiah 44 uh, has something to say about this. Isaiah 44, if you turn there, here we see What happens when we don't have that kind of correction? And uh, what it is that uh, is so dangerous, and what it is that is so dangerous, is what's inside us, our hearts. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, the context here, God is... uh, speaking through the prophet Isaiah in relation to those in Israel who were 
uh, given to idols. And uh, here we learn about why it is that we need others. All who fashion idols, all who fashion idols are nothing. The nothing they're referring to, the human beings who fashion them. Verse 11, he's going to tell us they are only human. Those who do it are nothing. They're only human. And the the point that he's already making, and he's going to continue to make this point as we move on, is that they're making something that people worship as God, as their deliverer. And yet those who make them are not gods. They are nothing. And the things that they delight in do not profit Their witnesses, or literally their customers, neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. Again, all his customers and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So here we're told about the person that makes these idols, these false gods, in this case wooden statues that uh, people bow down to. And uh, what God tells us about these uh, individuals who are making these uh, things is that the reason that they do this, even though from a a logical perspective, uh, it is completely unreasonable to think that anyone would do that based on the fact that 
from that same block of wood that they made their idol or their god comes also the wood they used for the fire, which means there's nothing special about it. And the only way that that piece of wood that they, that they worship or fall down before uh, is made to look like anything that might possibly deliver them is because of the craftsman's work and turning it into something other than just a block of wood. But the reason all of this uh, happens, and again, this, this goes back to, again, the insanity that we read here. Why would anyone do that? And that's the question that he says. Why would they fall down before a block of wood? And in verse 20, we're given again the answer. He does it because of a deluded heart. A deluded heart that has led him astray. A deluded heart that cannot deliver him. That cannot cause him to wake up. To understand that there is a lie in his right hand. That what he worships and thinks is God. What he thinks will deliver him cannot deliver him. And again, the reason for all of this is because he has a deluded heart. And so, the answer to the question, why is it that people serve other gods? And maybe you don't know this, but every single human being, every single human being that has ever existed worships a god. A god in their image, a god they call no god, a god they may call creation, the false gods of false religions, or the true god of heaven and earth. And the only way that any of that uh, happens, or rather, the only distinction that can be made between the false gods of this world and the true God of heaven and earth is this distinction of where your heart is. Because if you have a deluded heart, what God is saying is that you will most assuredly serve and believe in and not know that you are serving a false God. Again, a deluded heart has led him astray. This is the reason that people serve in this world false gods. And again, everyone serves a god. A deluded heart. And again, notice that deluded heart cannot deliver him any more than that block of wood can deliver him. Putting this all together then, you'll notice there in the notes, fallen feelings. Depravity, we're born into sin, and so our feelings, as we've talked about before, lead us astray. And really what we see here can be said in this way, fallen feelings fueled by pooled ignorance produces a deluded heart that cannot deliver itself. And uh, the majority of the world fits into this category. Why? Well, because again, we're born... That way, depraved, we have fallen feelings. In other words, feelings that will lead us astray. And when you add to that the pooled ignorance of the world, all of that produces then this thing called, again, 
a deluded heart. And when a person has a deluded heart, they cannot deliver themselves. They cannot deliver themselves. We cannot deliver ourselves when our hearts are deluded. And the only way to then be delivered from that, because it can affect us as well, the only way to be delivered from that self-delusion is to let others into your day-to-day life to assess it and to exhort and correct where necessary. Again, having... A deluded heart is not just true of those who make uh, blocks of wood into idols. It is true of all of us because we were all originally born into sin. And even though Jesus delivers us from the power of sin, we must continue to fight against a very deluded heart. A heart that is desperately wicked. And heart, lave in the Hebrew, refers to the seat of the emotions, the feelings, our bodies, which are always sending us the wrong signal. And again, the only way out of that, the only way to be delivered from that, to see clearly through that, is others. The body of Christ. Because it's much easier to see somebody else's sin than to see our own. You see, that's the one thing that a deluded heart has not taken away. Thank God for that. We can still have righteous or accurate judgment in relation to others. The problem is as it relates to self. And so others, we need others. Hence the reason the writer of Hebrews says what he does in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Notice how he begins verse 12. Take care, brothers. Take care. Be on your watch. Be vigilant. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. Lest you be self-deluded. That's literally what he's saying here. Take care lest any of you be self-deluded. Listening to your feelings. And that leads you to fall away from the living God. We know that phrase fall away. It's actually used uh, quite a bit here in the book of Hebrews and it refers to apostasy, the final falling away. And notice again his counsel, take care brothers. This could happen to you and how it happens is by having that uh, deluded heart, an evil, unbelieving heart. And the very fact that he can give this counsel to believers tells us, as I've already told you, this can be true of us as well. Not just those, again, who uh, turn blocks of wood into idols. We, too, are susceptible to a deluded heart. The cure, the way out of that, how do we protect against falling away? Apostasy? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness 
of sin. And that's exactly what delusion does. It deceives us into believing that we're okay. One of the things that uh, self-delusion does, uh, an additional thing that self-delusion does, is uh, gives us that uh, sense that we can make it on our own. And so going back to where I said at the start is that uh, this mindset of, I don't need anybody else. I can figure things out for myself. That's part of the deceit. The deceitfulness of sin in our hearts that tells us that I don't need others to uh, do this exhorting. And notice, uh, it is to be every day, as long as it is called today. What is he saying there? Uh, This isn't uh, something that we should expect to be infrequent, but frequent. If we are to stay on the narrow path. If we are to protect against being deluded. Something again that we are all susceptible to. The way around it, the way to prevent it, is to have others in our life. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means then that I've got to be open. I have to be living a transparent life. Understanding that when others speak into my life, when they exhort me, that it's a good thing, not a bad thing. We want that. We should be looking for that. Hence the reason we are transparent. We want that so that we are not self-deluded. How many people do you suppose will uh, be that or be guilty of that on Judgment Day? My guess is not a few. And the reason I say that is because I think this is one of those things as it relates to doing family that uh, we as Christians struggle the most with. We don't want people knowing our business. We've been told by the world, never mind that the world is run by Satan, 1 John 5.19, but we've been told and we listen to the world who says uh, that your business is your business. And our deluded, wicked hearts tell us, that's true, that's right. That's your business. And Jesus comes along and Jesus says, no, just the opposite. Your business is family business. You're to be sharing your life with the family. Those who walk in the truth come to the light, John 3. That their deeds may be shown to have been wrought in God. And so we're those kinds of people, and that because of this perspective. We understand that we need people if we're truly going to get to heaven. We understand that. And so what they say to us is good, it's not bad. We welcome it rather than get angry or pout or become defensive. Psalm 141, Psalm 141, verse 5 It says, let the righteous, this is David, let let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Let the righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Is that the way that it feels? No. No does not feel that way. 
But how we respond to it is not according to our feelings if we're following Jesus. We receive it. The reason I bring that up, by the way, about how it feels is because some of you are really confused about this. We've, we've talked about it enough to where it shouldn't be confusing, but nonetheless, it continues to confuse you. Your feelings are not what you're to be following as the determiner of truth. Feelings don't think. And so, even though it feels that way, and I'm sure it felt that way for David, David says, nonetheless, let the righteous man strike me. I will regard it as kindness. You see, this is will over emotions. That's how I will will myself to see it, kindness, as oil for my head. That doesn't sound uh, like much fun, but uh, oil in ancient times, uh, pouring oil or anointing someone's head with oil was uh, seen as a good thing. There were uh, health properties to doing that. I guess is the best way to put it. And so uh, David is, uh, in saying this, that this is a positive, again, not a negative, it's a positive. I want that. I want that. And so again, uh, the only way to be delivered is through this exhortation, or this kind of exhortation that comes from the body. James chapter 5 says this. James chapter 5, the final verses there, James chapter 5 says this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and here we have in mind now uh, a person who's self-deluded, and uh, to make the distinction there, we already have a deluded heart, we have a, a depraved heart, we have a heart that the only thing it can really do is deceive us, and so to be self-deluded means that I am now listening to that heart, and as a result of that, I've wandered from the truth, He says here, and someone who brings that person back, the person who does that, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Most likely what he means there by cover a multitude of sins is uh, that the person who brings him back is covering over the sin that then he would be guilty of or sins that he would be guilty of had he not taken that role that role of being essentially his brother's keeper. So what James is telling us here is that those are the kinds of people we are to be. When we see sin in others, we're to go to them, we're to be faithful with them, we're to attempt to bring them back. And in that way, we do our duty to them. In that way, we love them so that we are not guilty of a multitude of sins, sins of omission, And in that process also, we save their soul from death. Which goes right back to what we already saw, and that is that these types of things are the things that will cause us or have the potential to cause us to ultimately fall away from God. And so it's a good thing. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, you know the text. Proverbs 18 He who isolates himself or herself, 
Proverbs 18. Seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Again, America, the American mindset doesn't like this, right? We're essentially encouraged to isolate ourselves. I remember when I moved to Colorado, one of the things that was told to me about the mountains was that's where the people who don't want others telling them what to do live. Isolation, according to God, means that you're just seeking your own way, which means you're not seeking God's way. When you do that, you are breaking out against all sound judgment. A fool, verse 2, takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his position. That's what you're doing. You've become the fool. Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12, verse 15. says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. I would assume that everyone here wants to be considered a wise man or wise woman, then you're a person who listens to advice, you listen to even correction in that respect. 15.12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Ask yourself, who is it that uh, you go to when seeking advice? Do you go to the wise or do you go to the sympathizer? Sin causes us to seek out the sympathizer. The person who's not going to correct us. The person who will never say tough things to us. The person who accepts us as we are, which again is not loving them. Who is it that you go to? The wise person or the sympathizer? This is Matthew 18 as it relates to our duty. Matthew 18, verse 15. When your brother is in sin, you go to him. Go to your brother first. Or that's the first step in the process or could be the first step in the process. That passage there uh, speaks of speaking to him or that person Uh, without involving the courts. And that uh, is what uh, Jesus is getting at there in that verse. Uh, When he says, go tell him his fault between you and him alone, if your brother sins against you, if he listens to you, very similar to James 5, you have gained your brother. You've gained your brother. What that isn't referring to is some kind of private conversation. Rather, it means do everything you can to deal with the matter before it needs to be taken to the courts, which is what the remaining verses are about. But again, this is the only way to be delivered. And it behooves us as the people of God, doing family according to Jesus, to be those kinds of helpers to one another, but also to be those kinds of people who receive that counsel. To have transparent lives. Again, in relation to 
uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, this is actually one of my favorite uh, section of verses in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 9, really gives us the picture of what welcoming the correction of your church family looks like. And he does that by distinguishing, God does that here in these verses by distinguishing between false humility versus true humility. And that word humility or humble, that word humble that we see uh, in scripture refers to submission. In this case, submitting to one another. This is what Ephesians 5 talks about. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The idea there is that we are welcoming, that we are submitting, we are receiving the counsel of others. Whoever that is. Whoever that is. And this is this idea or is the idea behind humility, that we're always teachable, that we're always transparent, not only to God, but others in the body of Christ. Again, the distinction between these two things in these first nine verses, Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Notice here God commanding the prophet to do this. To be faithful to his people, his brothers and sisters, by declaring their transgressions. Yet they seek me daily, God says, and delight to know my ways as if there were a nation that did right, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Notice the the tension here that is being created. God is telling Isaiah to go and to declare sin, and yet, verse 2, as it says, God saying here, they act as though they're not people with sin, that they are people instead who seek him daily. They are people who delight to know his ways, that they do righteousness and they do not forsake the judgment of their God. Verse 3, why have you fasted and you seen it not? This is now uh, the voice of the people speaking back to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, God now responding, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Here is that false humility that he's then going to contrast in the remaining verses with true humility or welcoming correction, either from God or from God's prophet or people. And God says, you, you act like it, you give the appearance, the way that you talk is, I am a person who wants to be righteous. I am a person who receives God's judgments. I seek God daily. And God says, it's all appearances, including your fasts. You think that I am pleased because uh, you sit around in sackcloth and ashes. You pout and you bow your head. 
And God says, that's false humility. That's not what it looks like to receive what God is giving through his word or through his people. Is not, verse 6, this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I love that. That last part there in verse 7, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. You know what he means by that? To be transparent. To be transparent. To not hide yourself from your own flesh. You don't hide who you truly are from your family, from your own flesh. God says, this is true humility. Then your light break forth like, then shall your light break forth like dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Again, in contrast to what was happening with their false humility. Remember, they complain, we've humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it. God says, I'll listen to you. Some of you, the reason why uh, you don't see the kinds of blessings that could be in your life is because you won't be transparent. You won't, again, as verse 7 says, you won't keep from hiding yourself. You instead hide yourself from your own flesh. In this case, from your church family. And here God is saying, when you do that, not only are you in danger of permanently falling away because of the the delusion that is building up inside of self, but you are also missing out on all of the blessings that could be yours if you were transparent. If you receive the exhortation the rebuke and the correction of your brothers and sisters, if you received it as if it were from God himself. So again, uh, doing family according to Jesus, very different from the world, we open ourselves up. We open ourselves up to the criticism of those in the body of Christ. Because we understand that what they give to us is a positive, not a negative. We want change. We are disciples, which means people who are always changing. We want that. We want to learn and we want to grow. And both of those things, learning and growing, require change. Number six, excluding a pattern of untrustworthiness and lying or possessing sufficient evidence of wrongdoing, you always give your brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt and think the best of them. Excluding a pattern of untrustworthiness and lying or possessing sufficient evidence of wrongdoing. In other words, unless those things are the case, you are always going to give your brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt and think the best of them. And this goes hand in hand with uh, what we just talked about, right? One of the biggest problems with receiving uh, correction from others is this, uh, this idea or the thinking that They're doing it because they don't like me. Or they're being evil against me. 
They mean to do me harm. They're not good people. And this, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, Paul identifies as evil suspicions. This kind of a mindset that thinks of people in that way, meaning the people in the body of Christ. That we have evil suspicions. And uh, this, uh, Paul attributes to uh, false teachers. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Someone corrects you and all you can think of is they mean evil against me. They're doing this because they don't like me. They're not attempting to build me up. They're only attempting to tear me down. Paul calls that here again. He identifies that as evil suspicions. To think that way about your brothers and sisters in Christ uh, without sufficient evidence without a pattern of untrustworthiness or lying in relation to that person, evil suspicions. Notice the internal engine, the internal engine producing uh, these feelings. There's two things that he tells us. Uh, They are a person who is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Notice that comes right before what he says. That kind of a person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. That's the second piece, which produced then, among other things, evil suspicions. Dealing again then with this first one, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Epistemi is the term in uh, Greek. It's where we get the term uh, epistemology from, which is the study of how we know what we know. And so uh, this is dealing with that very thing. And in this case, it's a negative maydays. Uh, They understand they truly know nothing, literally no one. This is the same term that's used in Luke 5.14, uh, where we're uh, told that Jesus instructs his disciples to tell no one. And that really uh, makes our point. These individuals who have evil suspicions in relation to their brothers and sisters are people who at the end of the day understand no one. Most especially those that they are having evil suspicions against. They are puffed up with conceit. Putting that all together, a person whose confidence, and here's this idea of puffed up with conceit, uh, unfounded pride, that idea of conceit, unfounded, baseless confidence, a person whose confidence in their ability to read people is not based on comprehension of the facts or truth. That's uh, one of the things that drives a person in this direction, is they, they think they can read people, They're the kind of person who will tell you, well, I'm really good at just reading people. But their basis for doing so is not comprehension, and and that word's in there deliberately. Uh, It's not based on comprehension, meaning understanding of the facts. You may think you have the facts, but that's not enough. Do you understand them? 
comprehension of the truth. Sometimes this is called uh, a sixth sense. I just have this uncanny ability, this sixth sense to, uh, to read people. And that, uh, that term refers to uh, how you determine reality. You determine it through your physiology, meaning your body, versus psychology, your brain. It's based not on facts, but on feelings. I can tell that person's not a good person. Really, how do you do that? I don't know, just a feeling I get. You see, that's the kind of person that uh, Paul's talking about here who will then suffer evil suspicions. That's the result of being that kind of a person with that kind of an internal engine. You're confident in your feelings as the determiner of who's good and who's bad, who you can trust. Secondly, again, as he says in the text, they have an unhealthy craving for controversies and quarrels about words. In other words, they are addicted to questioning or distrusting people or the words of people. Literally what it says in the text there for quarrels about words, word striving. They're addicted to that, questioning, distrusting people, distrusting their words, questioning their words. They're addicted to this, to this kind of activity, and most especially in relation to the people that they should trust. That's the context here. Paul is condemning uh, these particular individuals because those that they are treating that way, those that they are uh, acting with evil suspicions against, are people that they should actually trust. And instead, those are the people that they are always questioning questioning what they say. Conspiracy theorists would be an example of this. These are the kind of people who, especially in relation to those in authority, always believe that there's some secret agenda plotting against them. Sinful plotting. I I said years ago, and I'm sure most of you probably don't remember this, but I, I remember saying it to you because it was, it was true of me when I first started the ministry, is that I remember having this, and I remember reading this, and, and God convicting me of it, and, and having to really process through that. And one of the ways that I did this is, I just started asking myself this question. Do I believe that before they called me, they were bowing down in a pentagram to Satan? And that was just my funny little way of getting that kind of, suspicion out of my mind. I I would just ask that question. Do I I really think they're at home saying, uh, Dear Lord Satan, let my evil plan prevail. I'm calling the pastor now. And yet, that's how we can be. Again, because of that depraved heart that beats inside of us. And, and this is where we need to do the work, man, if we're going to do family according to Jesus. Evil suspicions. Thinking that everybody's always out to get you. That they are somehow bowing down in a pentagram. Wanting to do evil to you and to everybody else. The way then to avoid evil suspicions based on uh, the engine that drives it is, again, two things. First, stop letting your trust in others be based on feelings. The feelings that that person gives to you, 
versus the facts about who they are. Easier said than done, I know. But this is what we need to do. Stop letting your trust. Be based on the feeling that other person gives you. Uh, you, You hear this on the positive and the negative side. They'll say, they seem nice. They seem friendly. Or they seem harsh or mean. Not always, but a lot of times when we use that kind of language, we're we're judging people based on how they make us feel. Isn't that true? They seem nice. That's why people buy cars off of Colfax. They do it because that's where the friendly people are. Not the people you can trust, but the friendly people. Versus, again, the facts. They have a history, again, both positive or negative. They have a history of lying or untrustworthiness. If you're buying a car off Colfax, good chance uh, you, you haven't looked into their history. You're going to that dumpy car lot and uh, you're choosing to buy a car off that lot uh, because the guy that is selling it to you seems friendly. Versus letting your judgment in relation to that person be based on the fact that they have a history of always speaking the truth. No matter how difficult or unpopular, you see, that's what stops evil suspicions. The second thing, stop thinking everyone is out to get you. That goes back to the to the controversy piece or unhealthy craving for. And uh, why I say addicted is because literally that's what that term unhealthy or phrase unhealthy craving is referring to, uh, addiction. So stop thinking that way. Everyone's always out to get you. Some of you, and I agree, you're, you're only here today. You're, 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 the only reason you're still breathing and on this planet is because Uh, You've employed this kind of a a policy with your life. You have not trusted other people. And that was necessary because of the world that you lived in. But you're not in that world anymore. And what, uh, what worked there doesn't work here. I understand that in the world you couldn't trust people. And uh, that was a part of being uh, what we used to call uh, street smarts. But that's not true here. When you act that way in the house of God, it will mean your destruction. Because when you have those kinds of evil suspicions, guess what? You do not be transparent with your life. Or you're not transparent with your life. You can't trust people. You don't welcome their criticism because in your mind, in the back of your mind, they've got it out for you. They're evil. You see, the two go hand in hand. Uh, Does this mean that we should never be suspicious or untrusting? No. Scripture, most especially the Proverbs, are filled with commands to be suspicious and untrusting of certain people, but it is based on facts, not feelings. I.e., they have a pattern of lying or untrustworthiness. Several passages there. You can uh, turn there with me, Proverbs 26, or you can just listen here, uh, we're given some, some, some instruction in that regard. 
as it relates to the fool. A fool would be a person that uh, is untrustworthy. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Verse 8, like one who binds the stone in the sling is the one who gives honor to a fool. Verse 10, like an archer who wounds everyone is the one who hires a passing fool or a drunkard. Romans 16, jumping to uh, the New Testament. Some other verses there for sake of time. We'll skip over uh, those verses in Jeremiah 7 and 9. Go right to the book of Romans. Here Paul giving uh, instruction to the church, most specifically her leaders. I appeal to you, brothers, now watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. What is he telling us there? Be suspicious. Be suspicious for these kinds of people, uh, those who cause divisions, who have a pattern of doing that. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Who are the naive? Uh, They're these kinds of people, people who uh, make their judgments on who to trust uh, based on, as he says here, again, smooth talk and flattery. These are the people that uh, operate according to their feelings, the people who say, they seem nice, so I'll trust them. So there are people that we're to be suspicious of, people who have smooth talk but don't have a good reputation. We don't just blindly trust, in other words, Hence the reason Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, that we're not to throw our pearls or valuable things. We're not to give those things to the hogs and the dogs of this world. Well, that means identifying who those people are. And again, the issue is one of uh, trust or suspicion, being suspicious of these people and not trusting these kinds of people. But again, it's based on fact, not feeling. John 2, 24 through 25, there at the uh, wedding At Cana, we're told that Jesus, even though many were believing in him, that he did not trust them because he knew what was in a man. And in the context, who it's speaking of there is uh, those who would later betray him. Jesus knew their, their pattern of behavior was one of untrustworthiness. They were fickle. So again, we're not saying that there's no one that you should be suspicious of. The point then not to miss, unless there is fact-based and sufficient evidence, we must always give others the benefit of the doubt no matter how we feel. We cannot act on how we feel. That's like, if you're going to like make a sign and put it somewhere in your house that you wanted to make sure that you operated by, I I, I could think of no better sign than this. We cannot act in how we feel. Because if you alleviate that one thing, you have people now who are no longer living for self. We cannot act on how we feel. We have people now who will be righteous in relation to one another. We cannot act on how we feel. Parents with your children... This is what you're attempting to drive from them through discipline and discipleship. You're teaching them that they are not animals. 
They are instead made in the image of God, which means they are to function according to that higher power, i.e. they are soulish beings as God has a soul. They are to operate according to their souls, their minds, the facts, and not their lower faculties like the animals, who because of that, who operate according to their feelings, are captured and destroyed. We cannot act on how we feel. If we do, we become guilty of serious sin, or we may become guilty. Deuteronomy 19 speaks of the malicious witness, and that is something that uh, the people become when they, uh, they act on their feelings, meaning they don't, they don't have the support with, uh, to what they're saying or they're accusing uh, another brother or sister of. And uh, uh, when people take action on uh, such things... Uh, it leads to uh, that kind of a charge. Proverbs 25, what your eyes have seen do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another secret lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. Notice he says there, your eyes have seen it. But that doesn't mean that what you've uh, how you're interpreting what you see is correct. So what does he say? Go, go to them. See, see, see if you can get the, the context for what was said or done. Because that might change things. Do that before you uh, move along the lines of taking them to court. This is Matthew 18. As a matter of fact, this is uh, really what Matthew 18 verse 15 is speaking about when it says, go to your brother and speak with him. See if maybe how you're perceiving things is wrong. Get the facts, in other words, and don't operate on your feelings. Otherwise, it may be you who's found to be guilty. It can also send us to hell, by the way, operating this way, not trusting our brothers and sisters. You say, well, I think that's a small thing. Uh, it's not, according to Revelation uh, chapter 21 and chapter 22. If you look there, Revelation 21 Verse 27, but nothing unclean, speaking about uh, the new creation, the reboot, nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That phrase there, does what is false, is the same. It's the same word or phrase that we find in 22.15, so in the very next chapter, verse 15, uh, that is translated there as practices falsehood, Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, meaning outside of the new creation, outside of heaven, are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Same, uh, same Greek words translated uh, does what is false in 2127 as is translated here practices falsehood. And literally, here's what it's saying. Uh, those who make up or create false reality in respects uh, false realities in respect to God. Those who make up or create false realities in respect to God, we call that false religion, or history, we call that revisionist history, or people. When you make up false realities about people, we call those caricatures. And that's what these kinds of people uh, uh, who end up in hell, uh, are guilty of. Notice, that's part of the list. This is not a small thing. 
to have uh, evil suspicions that uh, drive you in this direction, that cause you to become this kind of a person, that now uh, you start to believe uh, wrong things possibly about God. We've seen that in this church. People who were so driven by their feelings that it literally drove them off the cliff in relation to God. They started to believe false things about God because that's how they felt. False things about history. How they recorded events in their minds was not according to the facts. We've seen that also. Or people. Again, the evil suspicions doing its work in these ways. The final thing then as it relates to doing a family according to Jesus, you stand up for your church family and pastors. You stand up for your church family and pastors by strongly opposing those who speak against them. By strongly opposing those who speak against them. We do not tolerate, and this coming not from me but from God, We are not to tolerate anyone inside or out who speaks against our church family and pastors. And that includes biological family. We talked about that under uh, family according to Jesus. And we saw uh, that as a part of his radical view, uh, this old saying, uh, blood is thicker than, uh, or rather, water is uh, thicker, which really doesn't make sense according to uh, how this is used, but the water is thicker than the The blood, no, sorry, I did it the wrong way, didn't I? Blood is thicker than water, but not the blood uh, uh, that that, that makes us uh, biologically of the same family. Rather, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the covenant is thicker than water, meaning the water of the womb. And this is what Jesus teaches us all over, as a matter of fact, throughout his earthly ministry. He teaches that we are to show allegiance to our church family over our biological family, which means then we do not tolerate those who speak against our church, our church family. We are to take personal uh, anytime someone declares or dares rather to speak against our church family and pastors. In other words, those are fighting words. And that because to speak against them is the equivalent of speaking against our Savior. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. When somebody comes against us, when someone comes against me, I'm a part of the family, you're a part of the family, and and you don't say anything, understand that when you do that, uh, you're letting them not just speak against these individuals, but against Christ against our Savior himself. That's at least how Jesus sees it. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. There's the positive. Right? If they receive you, they're receiving me. By receiving you, they're receiving me, which means the antithesis would also be true. Whoever rejects you, what? rejects me. Luke chapter 10, verse 16, picks up the negative. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. This is why we should take it personal. And again, it's inside or out. We don't tolerate it. 
Such individuals are encouraging dissension and should be reported to the elders. Uh, the elders, we saw that in Romans, or at least we saw uh, mention of these individuals in Romans 16, the text we looked at uh, a moment ago. But verse 19 picks up this idea of uh, really, or at least implies this aspect of reporting it. Uh, verse 19, after he says, uh, watch out for these individuals, those who cause divisions or create obstacles. He says, for, verse 19, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Literally, I want you to be wise as to who is good and innocent as to who is evil. In other words, possess the knowledge of who is who. And the only way to do that is to make sure you're taking it to the top. Those who shepherd the flock need that information. When others are speaking against others in the body of Christ or against the shepherds themselves, that's the kind of thing we need to take note of, to watch out for. One of the keys to effectively advancing God's kingdom against the false forms of Christianity that exist in this world is through our unity in this respect. Meaning that all of us are committed to standing up for our church family, including your pastors. And we do that by strongly opposing those who speak against them. It is also, by the way, a sign of our salvation. We don't think about it that way. We say, well, I, I, I take a stand for my church, for my church family, including the pastors. I, I take a stand for that stuff, but I've never saw it that way. And yet, this is exactly how Paul speaks of it in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, he makes the connection between uh, doing this kind of a thing, being unified in this way, and uh, salvation. This is a sign, in other words, that we are indeed saved people, meaning people who take stands in this way, those are saved people. When you see that, that's a saved person who does that. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 uh, in following, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or, an at, or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one not mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, unified together, which means also then not frightened in anything by your opponents. Notice what it says. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Your unified opposition sends a message to them. They're going to be destroyed if they don't listen. Notice what else it does. This is a clear, clear, notice, sign. Not just a sign, a clear sign, not only of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So when we stand together in that way, when we do family that way, when we stick up for each other in that way, again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is a clear sign that you're a safe person. Which means, again, the antithesis would also be true. When you don't, when you're limp-wristed, when you won't say anything, that is a clear sign that maybe you're not saved anymore. That you're ashamed of not only the gospel, but Christ and his people. And his people. Given the overall context of 1 Timothy, and this is the last thing I would have you consider in relation to this uh, final point of application, doing family according to Jesus. Given the overall context of 1 Timothy, meaning the, uh, the book of 1 Timothy, 
Uh, this act of strongly opposing those who oppose Christ, church, and people is the key function, is the key function of those selected as ruling or non-ordained elders. And uh, this was uh, significant to me when uh, this was pointed out to me, that those who function in this capacity are doing so within this context, the context of warfare. Because that is the context of uh, 1 Timothy, if you turn over there. 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 18, he really uh, lays out for us in this verse uh, why he's giving uh, the particular instruction that he is to Timothy, uh, which would include then uh, the appointing of these non-ordained elders that we find in verses 8 through 12 or the qualifications for these men. Uh, he's doing it, or they are being appointed for this purpose, to wage the good warfare. Notice what he says. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And the context of the book, as well as in 2 Timothy, which is why we find all the, the, the military language in these two books, The context is warfare, which means that the function of these elders is consistent with that. For the longest time, I viewed non-ordained elders, and I would say the same is true for you, as really kind of a junior level of me. And so what we, we expect from these men is that they, they have the capacity to teach or they have the capacity to give instruction. When according to scripture, according to places like Titus, uh, that is the job uh, of the priest, the new covenant priest, the ordained pastor. And rather, according to the context here, the way that we should view these men is as the righteous security team for the church. Their key function is that of protection and enforcement. And so what Paul is calling uh, Timothy to do here as he is uh, battling uh, uh, problems there in that uh, uh, important church in Asia Minor, the Ephesian church, what he's calling him to do is essentially establish a security team that he can go back into battle with. Those who will be bold in their fight for God's house, for his people and his pastors. First Timothy 3.15 says that uh, the church is God's house. As such, this is the mindset we should have when considering elders. Not only must they be righteous according to the criteria that we find there, but also the bold protectors of God's people and pastors. They are, as we've talked about before, the new covenant Levites. Isaiah 66, verse 21, uh, God promises to again establish, uh, meaning under the new covenant, priests, that's the ordained elder role, as well as Levites. And you may remember from our study of the Pentateuch, uh, this was their role. Numbers 18, it says Leviticus there in your notes. Uh, that should be Numbers 18. Uh, for sake of time, we'll just look at this one, uh, this one text, but you'll see exactly what I'm talking about here. Uh, they are uh, the security team in relation to God's house and uh, that being his people and his pastors or priests. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house, House with you shall bear uh, iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons uh, with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, 
the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They, meaning the Levites, they shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, meaning God's house, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. Really uh, important instruction here uh, as it relates to even uh, the New Testament. Uh, What is God saying here? Their job is not as it relates to what I'm doing now. They're not involved in the, uh, uh, the, 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 the temple worship or liturgy. That's not their job. That's not to be uh, their function. In other words, uh, we're not to see them that way. And in their day, if they attempted to do those roles, they would die. They instead shall join you, and notice again, here it is, and keep guard over the tent of meeting. For all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary, meaning the priests, and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. You're to guard the pulpit. That's a... a, New covenant translation of that. I'm to see that what's taught in this church is according to what God says. Lest I bear the iniquity for it. And so I guard the sacred things and they guard the sacred house, her people and her pastors. And behold, I have taken your brothers again, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. What service? They're the guards. Levites guard the priests in God's house. They are the, we might call them the police or the protectors. They're the enforcers, the ruling elders. That's their function. The priests, they guard the holy things in the house, God's laws and sacraments. They are her judges. You have the police and you have the judges. Once more then, this is how we should be choosing men to fill this role in our church. They must be men who have already demonstrated loyalty and boldness in fighting for God's people and pastors. Should be capital G there, forgive me for that. Loyalty and boldness in fighting. These are the kinds of men, beloved, that we're looking for. It's not men with great intellect. And in the past, that's how we've we've seen elders, whether they're in the ordained position or the non-ordained position. That's not how God wants us to view them. That's not the work that they're to be doing. And said again, they are those who are bold in fighting against opposition for God's people and pastors, for their church family. Cowards and limp-wristed men need not apply. So the closing challenge, and I think this is a good way to wrap it up as we're thinking on this, uh, this final point here. Challenge, we need more ruling elders in this church, beloved. We need more ruling elders. Knowing now what we know, think about who among the men, those who would qualify as righteous, who among the men have already demonstrated themselves not only to meet those qualifications, the qualifications that we find in verses 8 through 12, but also are bold against those who oppose Christ's people and pastors. Who are those men? Because you don't become that It's what you already are. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us time to uh, discuss again this incredibly important issue of family. And as my brother, my dear brother prayed uh, at the beginning of our time that uh, we would uh, grow, that we would leave this place different. 
from the way that we came in and uh, that based on what we've learned here today from your word. Make it so we pray to the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.